Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. We've got a special Saturday edition coming at you guys today. Had some wonky things going on schedule-wise this week, so our normal publication schedule, a little bit off, but all good. We've got two phenomenal guests coming at you. Up first, we are going to be talking all things NHL playoffs, NHL hockey, Habs, Leafs, Oilers, Jets, everything that's going on in the North Division. We've got from the Montreal Canadiens over 13 years in the NHL, 3,000 plus career penalty minutes, top 10 all time, the one and only Chris Knuckles Nyland. We're going to talk what he's been seeing in this series, the code in hockey, the Tom Wilson incident, the John Tavares, Corey Perry knee to the head incident and more. So great conversation with him. Then we sit down with author and Phillies beat writer for the MLB, Todd Zalecki, whose new book, Doc, The Life of Roy Halladay, it's out everywhere now. Currently in hardcover, the paperback is about to drop as well too. We talk all things Roy Halladay and one of the most underrated pitchers of his generation, really, because when you talk about some of the all-time greats of that era, his name doesn't always come up. It's not one of the first ones you think of. So great to relive some of the good old Doc Holiday days and uh, flashback to his time north of the border here up in Toronto. Obviously, many, many phenomenal seasons with the Jays and then went on and had another stellar second half to his career with the Phillies. So great conversation with him. Let's get right into it. Up first, Chris Nyland. And joining us on the podcast today, we've got 13-year NHL veteran, Stanley Cup champion, over 3,000 career penalty minutes, the one and only Chris Knuckles Nyland. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm good there, Kyle. How are you, pal? I'm doing well, doing well. Following Thursday night's win, I was a little concerned when the game went into overtime that we'd have a little bit less to talk about, but Montreal lives to see another day. We've got game six in Montreal Saturday night. And that seems like a good enough place to start right there. First five games of the series between Montreal and Toronto. What are your initial thoughts seeing how it's played out so far? It's actually been kind of a letdown as far as the series goes, you know. Um, When I think of uh, good playoff series and those first round battles, you know, um, you know, Toronto uh, against Boston, uh, those series, you know, those were unbelievable, even though the Leafs didn't get out of them. Um, there was some good, good hockey, good battles. Now, so far this year, when you you looked at Florida, put up a good, good fight with Tampa, um, lost in six, and then tonight you got the Wild and uh, the Golden Knights, which is awesome. I love Game Sevens, but uh, you know this has been a letdown as far as the series. Really, uh, you know that first game was uh, was so so. The Habs ran around a bit. Price won that game for them. Mm-hmm. And Paul Byron, um, incredible uh, shorthanded goal he scored. But And then the Leafs come back and made um, kind of short work of the Canadians in, in, in that game two. And then game three was kind of like game one. But it was like, ugh. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we know what happened. They got in the hole. Uh, they got they get shut out uh, at home. And you go in a... Uh, Maple Leaf Garden and 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 there they go. Uh, the Habs get out to that lead and they back on the heels in the third period. The Leafs tie it up and then we know what happened in overtime. Big mistake by Galchenyuk, and it goes back to Montreal. Now, 
listen, the, if the Habs come out and can play a good, solid game against his team and Price does what he does, they can take this to seven. And if they do, man, all the pressure will be on the Maple Leafs. And obviously a huge storyline this year is at least in the Canadian divisions, you know, down South, they've got some packed arenas going on down there, but North of the border, obviously no fans going on. And as someone who has spent close to a decade in Montreal and several deep playoff runs that you've been a part of, like in a normal non COVID year, what's the atmosphere usually like in Montreal when the Habs are going deep in the playoffs, both in the arena and just even in the city when they're on a playoff run? Well, I forget almost, well, I don't forget what it's like, but I kind of do because it's been so long here. You know, I, I go back to those, uh, you know, when I was playing and I also go back to when the Canadians were up against the Bruins in the playoffs in the more recent times. Man, this place is hopping. Uh, the buzz, the people, you know, they're driving around with Canadians flags. And th- this whole city, th- like this is a different year. Mm-hmm. But w- without COVID, a year the Canadians don't make the playoffs. It is depressing around here. Mm-hmm. It, you, you can feel it. You can feel it in the city when um, they don't make the playoffs. And on the flip side, when they do, you can really feel it the other way. It's like incredible. There's a buzz about this city when they're in the playoffs. And and right now it's hard to get that feel because of COVID. And, you know, no one's around the building. You know, when there's a playoff series, man, and and the Habs are in it, and it's a normal time. Everybody's around the Bell Center, hoofing around. You know, they're just a buzz. And it's unfortunate, but uh, that's what it is. And hopefully uh, we get back to that next year. Yeah, absolutely. And having played not only for Montreal, but for some other franchises as well, too. And even just when you're visiting different teams as a Montreal Canadian, how does that atmosphere and that buzz in the city compare to other hockey markets? Like, is it just the epitome of tops of the tops or is it like describe to us what, what it's like? Well, I played in New York, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, they could give a rat's ass if <laughs> you <laughs> you know, they don't know who the hell's who there. You're walking around there. You know, you go to the game there. They're trying to sell you tickets. You know, <laughs> I, I have one guy when I was in New York, uh, this guy is a scalper. And um, I'd always come in and say, hey, man, you want a couple tickets? Because I'd always come to the game with a suit on. And no, I'm all set. I get the best seat in the house. <laughs> and I would always say it to him. And every time I walked in the game, and then I finally said, hey, hey, buddy, listen, I play for the Rangers. He said, no way. What, what's your name? I said, Chris. Nine. He said, yo, knuckle. Whoa, yo, knuckle. And he was going nuts. But anyway, <laughs> it was just so funny. Uh, the difference between Montreal and going down to New York. And then where, where I'm from in Boston, right? Like people love hockey and they love the Bruins and, you know, everybody knows who's who down there too. So that's a, a another city that buzzes pretty good, even though, you know, you got the other three major sports in that city. Uh, NFL, NBA, and, and Major League Baseball, and soccer, whatever. But, uh, you know, the Bruins are still, you know, it, it, there's a buzz in that town when they're in the playoffs. For sure. And uh, recently announced 2,500 fans, obviously 10% of capacity, but it's going to be some people coming back for game six. Do you think that adds any kind of home ice advantage or when you're talking about such a small amount of people, like what kind of an effect do you think that'll have on two teams who haven't played in front of anyone in over a full year at this point? Well, maybe a little noise will help. It's better than the fake noise. Yeah. Right. Uh, You know, there's people there. Uh, I'd venture to say that um, Cole Caulfield Anderson and Toffoli, who have not played in front of a crowd here, mm-hmm. 
might have, it might give them a little more incentive, a little more jump. Hey, we got a few fans here. First time I'm going to play in front of Montreal fans other than on TV. So just maybe, just maybe, um, you get a little of that from them. Uh, we'll see. But uh, hey, listen, every every little bit counts. If 2,500 fans, I don't know how much noise they can make. Uh, like my suggestion was, if you should recruit about 25 Irishmen and give them. Um, <laughs> Give them um, free beer tickets for Molson, and they'll make more noise than twenty thousand people. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What was it? It was like ten cent beer night in Cincinnati or something. There, uh, that, that didn't end too well. I don't think at the ballpark that night. But so we saw in the North, other North Division series, Connor McDavid and the Oilers. They get swept in four. If you're the Oilers and, and you're looking at that roster here, obviously McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nurse, untouchable. They're not going anywhere. But if you're the GM of that team and you just can't seem to get over that hump into the deeper rounds of the playoffs, what moves are you looking to make this offseason? Well, geez, I think they're going to need a goalie to support the other goalie, mm-hmm. right? A good backup because the guy his age can't handle that load again, you know, full season. They're going to need a good backup. Uh, they're definitely going to need another um, defenseman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe who can can kind of lug the mail a little bit. Um, and then, uh, man, maybe maybe another center iceman, another winger, maybe. Um, again, those two guys—they're responsible for all the uh, all the offense, and yeah. you know, you got a one-line team basically. So they're going to have to come up with. Uh, a second line, another D-man, another goalie. If they if they could get four more pieces like that, and and you know have a couple lines that could add offense, and then you get those bottom six who who can you know slug it out and get some end zone time. Don't be a, a you know a liability defensively. Then you know maybe they get a shot. But um, you know Mark Bergman got the knock here for. You know, they asked him about getting a center iceman or a big power forward. He said it's hard to get those players, you know, and they would, oh, it's too hard. Other teams do it, though, you know, it, you, like people just rip them, you know. <laughs> and, you know, he went out and got some good pieces, great pieces to Foley Anderson. But, you know, and he got Deneau from Chicago back in the day. But I've always said it. When Deneau's the third-line center iceman on this team, they're going to be in good shape. Mm-hmm. But it's not there yet. Suzuki's a promising young player. Kokinemi, man, I, I I never was looking for them to take Kokinemi. I wanted Kachuk in the worst way, but they picked the kid. Now he's here. Uh, I'd love to see him develop into a pretty good player. I think mm-hmm. he can. Is he going to be like a top two center ice in the league? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe a three hole centerman. If he can get to two, great. Suzuki, is he going to get to that number one center? Can he get there? Possibly. Definitely a two. Mm-hmm. But can he be that number one guy? And that remains to be seen. And this year, when they come out of the bubble at the playoffs, you know, everything you know, everything looked promising. And I remember on my show at the beginning of the year, we talked about it. And I said, listen, here's the deal. And we've all said it. It's all going to depend on these kids because – Listen, where does the offense come from? It gets driven from center ice. Mm-hmm. They drive the ship. They're the guys who create the offense. They're the guys who distribute the puck. They're the guys who make the plays. They're the guys who can make guys better around them. It was too much of a load for Suzuki and Kokanyemi at this young age and Evans. So you had three young sentiment along with Deneau. And 
you know, that's where I think they, they got hurt this year. And um, they're going to have to get better in that position um, moving forward. Now, can they do it from within? I don't believe so. Can they get a number one center in the draft? I don't, not right now, not where they're drafting mm-hmm. in the draft. So uh, you, all your, your, your hope is pinned on Kokinemi and Suzuki developing into maybe a one, two or a two, three yeah. type situation. Yeah. And, you know, you, you just hit on that center ice depth, especially come playoff time is so important. And you look at the Winnipeg Jets who just ousted the Oilers and what is their strength, right? They've got a great goaltender, which you need in the playoffs and, and then they're strong right up and down the middle. So whoever comes out of this Toronto Montreal series, how do you see them matching up against the Winnipeg Jets who seem to be built for the playoffs? Yeah, they are. But God, everybody said that about the Canadians too, right? Uh, and the Habs actually did well against Winnipeg this year. Mm-hmm. They played pretty well. So, you know, they match up better, I believe, against Winnipeg than than they do against the Leafs, uh, obviously. But, you know, we're going to see what happens there. Um, you know, they get great gold in Winnipeg, and, and they get some big boys. They got a big middle, and they get some big wingers. And mm-hmm. that coach has done a hell of a job. You know, when they lost all them defensemen that one <laughs> couple, year, you know, a year and a half ago, so it's unbelievable. You know, they were they were limping around. No defense at all. And they kind of put it back together there and quickly shoveled day off and, and and the head coach did a hell of a job. So uh, yeah, watch out. So if you had to make a prediction today then, who's coming out of the north? <laughs> yeah, listen, I had the Leafs uh winning this during the year coming in the top spot. I had the Habs in the two hole, but man, they fell on their face. Um yeah, you know, you would think the Leafs, uh, but you just you just never know. I mean, the Habs win this game three, and it goes seven games. Like I said, it, all the pressure's on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I know, and I've heard it plenty of times. I've been part of it plenty of times. Game seven, oh, yeah, you know, it's great you're playing it in your building. Everybody says, I'd rather play in my building than their building. I don't know about that. <laughs> Because here's the deal. You don't play well in your building, and next thing, the other team scores a goal, two goals, and you're like, what's going on? The clock's ticking. The pressure comes. They start squeezing the stick, and next thing you know, you're out of the playoffs. And you're like, what happened? But there's a lot of pressure on the home team in Game 7. So, um, man, you know, right now, I, I, I'd say the Habs could get out of it. They get by Toronto. They get a chance at beating Winnipeg. Yeah. And then uh, if Toronto does, yeah, listen, Winnipeg could beat them. Who knows? Well, a lot of discussion has been around sort of the code in hockey, especially of late there. And there have been two incidents that have happened fairly recently. And as someone who's been a veteran of a few fisticuffs in your day as well, too, wanted to get your opinion on the matter. So we started off just with the Tom Wilson Rangers fiasco that happened there. What were your initial thoughts on how the Rangers handled it the next game on the ice, but also in the media, taking those shots at George Peros and the Department of Player Safety and all of that? Well, that was the owner. It wasn't, you know, it, it, you know, the, the owner did that. And they mm-hmm. ended up firing J.D. And, and, and Gordon because those guys didn't back the owner because they didn't believe he should have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, the decision was made. And my, my whole thing is, here's the deal. You got players like that, Panera, and I – New York, they're not a tough team, okay? And they have some good players. 
I don't care whatever it is. You better have a guy there that can watch out for them, especially you're in that division with Tom Wilson. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they don't want to waste the money or a position on a guy who is like a Matt Martin or Ryan Reeves. Mm-hmm. I beg to differ. You have a guy like that in the lineup on the fourth line, and you can throw him out in the ice, and something like that happens, you can take care of it. Mm-hmm. And listen, Tom Wilson, he's crossed the line so many times. And, you know, I, I just thought it was stupid what he did with Panarin. I didn't have a problem what he did to Kidney Ice. Mm-hmm. He, he gave him a little shot with his glove in the back. Wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. They made a big deal out of that. The, the thing with Panarin, to me, was a big deal. He yeah. saw it with Panarin. Okay, Panarin jumped on his back. All of a sudden, he goes nuts on Panarin. He threw him around like a rag doll. Yeah. Like, the kid ever hit his head in the ice, split his head open. It's over. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, come on. He could have grabbed him around the head, got him in a headlock or something, and just held on to him. Yeah. But, you know, again, I've been there in the heat of the moment. You lose it. So he, 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 lost, his, he lost his shit. And, you know, he's done that too many times, crossing the line. And, you know, one more time, and he, he's going to get hammered again. Maybe one time they're going to spend him for a year, he does something like that. You know, it's like Kadri. You know, he just, uh, you cross the line. Listen, I've done, I got suspended once, eight games. Mm-hmm. In Middleton. I never did again. I never got suspended again for something like that. So, you know, you got to learn your lesson. I did after that eight game. I mean, of course, they let a lot more shit go back when I played. But still, eight games back when I played is like a fucking death sentence today. <laughs> right? You get eight games today, they're like, oh, my God. I got that in the fucking 80s. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point too, right? Because Tom Wilson, this is not his first rodeo here. He has been in the crosshairs of Department of Player Safety and suspensions and blah, 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 blah for years now. So when you saw everything that happened and were reading about it afterwards, saw the highlights, all of that, what were you expecting suspension-wise or fine-wise, which obviously ultimately didn't materialize, but what were you sort of thinking he was going to get based on his history at that point? I thought he might get a couple games because compared to the other stuff he did, Mm -hmm. honestly, I didn't think it was a big deal. And they were talking about the Buchnevitz thing, not even Panarin. So what he did to Buchnevitz, I don't have a problem with that. Like Mm -hmm. he gave him a little shot. It wasn't a big deal. And, you know, I just I like I I like Tom Wilson can play hockey. He's big. He's intimidating. No one's gonna mess with him except for maybe Ryan Reeves. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I well one time I I lost some respect for Tom Wilson when Reeves offered him out and he didn't fight him in Vegas. And what I don't like about that is if you want to be the tough guy, and you get challenged, don't give me that. Oh, I'm a good player now. I can't, I don't have time to fight you, Ryan Reeves. That pisses me off. Yeah. You know, you're a tough guy ways. and you get cha- challenged, you got to fight the guy. And none of that, oh, yeah, I, I'm a good player now. I play with Ovi. You know, screw you. Yeah. So I, I lost some respect from there, but I, I still really like him. I yeah. do. And and he, um, hopefully, he, he, he gets it together. And hey, listen. You know, those guys in Ovechkin for years, they, they got the knock. He was a coach killer, couldn't win the big one. He was selfish. I'm happy for them that they won a Stanley Cup. Good on them. So thinking back to your playing days and whether it was in the NHL or even minor leagues or what, whatever it was coming up through the systems, if something like that were to happen to a teammate of yours, whether it was the Panarin or the Buchnevich thing there, whatever it was, 
and you're playing that same team the next game. Like, what's it like pregame in the dressing room? Is the captain giving the guys sort of the marching orders? Is it coming from the coaches? Or does everyone just inherently know what's going to shake down that next game? Yeah, no, you know what? We've had a lot of stuff that happened over the years, and there was never any talk for that. Mm-hmm. You knew the game got going, and then the shit flew is what happened, you know? And, you know, that whole Quebec thing, you know, Good Friday game, Kind of same thing happened to Cabano. Hunter had him down. He's rabbit punching him like Wilson was doing at Buchnevich. And I tried to get in there. Mola wouldn't let me. I told him, let go. He wouldn't. I cracked him. And we got in this big brawl. Mm-hmm. And then we know what happened a year later. Philadelphia, the big brawl, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, we, we used to have it out with Boston all the time. And we knew when stuff was coming. We, it wasn't really talked about. And Bob Ganey uh, was always good in it at bringing it back front and center and said, you know, listen, here's the deal. We got to stand up these guys. We got to, you know, we're we're not backing down, but let's go play hockey, beat them. We beat them. We play hockey. We beat them. Yeah. You know, they take the stupid penalties and, and they've always done it. Boston always did it. When I played here, they could never beat us before that. They could never beat us because they always beat themselves. They always had these good teams, but the macho bullshit always took over. And they'd end up doing something stupid, and it would cost them the game. Yeah. And believe me, I've done stupid things too that cost my team a game. <laughs> but I'm not. But they seem to always do it in the playoffs. They could never get to the point where they turn their other cheek. They always had to get the last, and they were like a pack of wolves. And and then next thing you know, um, they're in line again with the sad faces on, shaking our hands, <laughs> saying <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Seth O'Reilly, he never got in line. He hated it because he hated the Canadians. <laughs> so second incident, obviously, involving Toronto and Montreal. This time you've got Tavares gets laid out the blue line as he's falling down, gets knee directly to the head by Perry. You watch it, it's a bang-bang play. I, I think even all the players realize it, it was an accident. There was no intent behind yeah. it. But very next play, Felino drops the gloves, away they go, all of that. Felino, after the game, says it had to be done. He knows it was an accident, but he needed to do it so that the game could move on. What were your thoughts on that whole thing as it was playing out in real time? Well, when I first saw it, I'm that stupid. He had to fight there. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, I'm in Felino's shoes. I see my captain laying there on the ice, get off in a stretcher. Actually, no accident. I'm going to do something. Yeah. I don't blame Felino. Uh, again, it does look stupid, though, for the league. For, for, not for the league. Yeah, for the league in a way, but not for the hockey fans so much. Mm-hmm. Some of the newer fans, maybe. Yeah. But for maybe some people that are on the outside looking at it, saying, that's why hockey's never going to go in the States. Uh, that's why hockey is so regional in the States. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. And, listen, Canada's game, we, we know that. Canadians love hockey. I love hockey more than any of them sports. I, it's the best sport in, in the playoffs. But when the league is trying to market to those not-so-traditional hockey markets, uh, some of that stuff turns some of those fans off. Is it going to make or break hockey? I don't believe so because it's going in a direction where they're getting away from more of that stuff. But, boy, uh, whoever thought that Florida would be – such a hockey hotbed back in the day right in california even now Mm -hmm. it's like crazy like the sharks uh 
the Ducks, uh, the Kings. I mean, they got big fan bases now. They're pretty huge. Um, and, you know, Arizona's Arizona. But, um, you know, you build a winner anywhere. And you look at Carolina. Whoever thought hockey's going to go in Carolina? Look at what they're doing there. You know, they're winning hockey games. they got a great fan base, rabid fan base. Uh, they're, they're, they're really into it. There's a whole big event there that people love going to game. They do more than just hockey, right? Mm-hmm. They make it a good an experience for the fan, and that's what you have to do in some of those markets. Yeah, build the show around the show, if you will. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, sort of lost in that exchange there with Felino and Perry was if you actually rewatch the actual quote unquote fight, Perry quickly drops the gloves, but then doesn't throw a single punch. Right? Like he's taking sort of his lumps there and then tussles them to the ground. So he knows that it's a lose-lose situation for him. He, he just knocked yeah. out the captain. If he happens to land a haymaker and knock out Felino or they slip and fall and someone hits their head, now he's taking out two Leafs. Like, yeah. he's nothing to gain from that. But from like a player's perspective, that's probably something that they might pick up on and realize, okay, regardless of what you think of Corey Perry and sort of the reputation that he may or may not have, depending on what your view of him is, is that something that even a detractor has to think like, you know what, good for him for taking his lumps. He knew what had to be done and took it like a man and moved on. Yeah, like- I'm, not, I'm, I'm not for taking lumps. I'm like, if you drop your gloves, fucking fight them. You know what I mean? I'm not dropping my gloves and taking my fucking lumps from anybody. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of surprised that he didn't throw it. Because, listen, when he went to a knee, Felino, fucking Perry could have, he, he could have come across with a right hand and, and put him down. Yeah. And he didn't. I would have. Listen, when a guy's down, he's down. But he wasn't all the way down. He was halfway down. Yeah. Finish him. Uh, I wouldn't have a problem. I don't want to hear the cold bullshit that, oh, the guy, guy was down on the knee. You let him back up and he knocks you out. Well, shame on you. That's the way I look at it. I don't care. When I had a guy down on the ice, I wouldn't hit him when I had him down, down. But, boy, um, yeah, Perry, I, I'm like, that's what everybody said. Like, oh, he didn't really throw a punch. He just took his lumps. Yeah, I'm not for taking lumps. But he's the one who dropped his gloves first. Mm-hmm. Like, he went after him. Like, and I, I always thought, yeah, he should have just stood there and waited for Felino to drop his gloves and then – drop him afterwards and then i would have loved to seen if they called the penalty instigator mm-hmm. like he should have gave toronto the opportunity to take the extra two minutes and he didn't he dropped his gloves and went after him and it was kind of like and then he didn't do anything so yeah. if he was smart he would have sucked try to suck him in for the two minutes of instigator because come on how can you not give felino an instigator there barry didn't go after him if we're looking at whether it's a rule change whether it's Department of Player Safety, whether it's even just going from one person in charge of handing out suspensions to a committee and maybe you get some different types of players in there. You get maybe an enforcer, maybe you get like a Paul Korea or Eric Lindros who had their careers ended by blindside hits or something like that. Like what's one thing that if you just had a magic wand and you could make hockey and the suspensions they hand out and the Department of Player Safety make more sense because it seems like whether it's the fans, the players, or the owners, no one seems happy with the current system. So what's one thing that you think would change how that gets rolled out for the better for hockey? I'd get rid of Colin Campbell. <laughs> I would. Just as simple as that. Get rid of Colin and <laughs> the problem. And you know who I would put in there? Who's that? Kerry Frazier. Okay. 
Why, why do you like Carrie Frazier in that role? Well, I believe Carrie Frazier knows the rule book better than anybody. Mm-hmm. And he, he's got common sense when it comes to calling penalties and knowing what to call and what. I've heard him break down so many like suspensions and plays that make so much sense. I'll see it one way and he, he'll say it and I'll go, okay, I can see that. Uh, like, I really think he'd do a good job at that. I think Colin Campbell and these, these guys that are calling these goals, like they don't have a fucking clue half the time. Like some of these goals they call back. I don't know. To me, it ruins a fucking game. I, I, I get, okay, we got to protect the goalies, but it's a little fucking much with this interference stuff. Now it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating because, you know, I, I come from an era where a lot of that wasn't called and they didn't protect the goalies as much. I get you have to protect them, but they fucking overdo it. No. And they, they overdo it to the point where it fucking ruins the game. What, you know, you talk about power forwards who drive the net and they're carrying the puck and they have nowhere to go and they make that play and they're getting pinched off by a D-man and they bump the goalie and then they're in the fucking penalty box. It's like... Okay, next time, here's what you do next time. Don't go to the net. Just go into the corner and around the fucking net. It's like I, I, they, they've screwed the game up that way, I think. And, you know, I, again, it's not a free whack and hack at the goalie, but, you know, they've taken a really important, exciting part of the game out, and I hate that. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Before we let you go, though, we got to get your prediction for final score, game six tomorrow night. How are you feeling? Do the Habs force a game seven or is it uh, Leafs advancing? Habs four, Leafs two. There you go. So game seven, baby. And all the heat's on the Leafs. And and all the media in Toronto is going to be up their ass and tell them how they're going to lose like they did to Boston. They can't get out of the first round. No, I just, listen, I'd love to see it go seven. Who knows? The Leafs are really, they they got some really talented players. That Nyland that's played unbelievable in this series. And uh, quite frankly, Matthews and Mana, Mana's played well. He's only got four assists, but he's played well, that kid. He's a great little player. I love Man, he is so smart with the puck. He makes great plays, distributes it well, you know. Matthews, super-duper player. You know what happens in the playoffs. Them great players sometimes, there's no room for them to do the things they did during the season, and they struggle at times. But that Nylander, he's impressed me, you know. A guy who I think kind of Leaf Nation was a little down on the contract thing. He's kind of cocky. You know, you like to slap him in the face, maybe. But he's, good. He, he's a good little player. Looks like he matured some, and mm-hmm. he, he's come to play. So that's that's good on the Leafs. And I just want to see the Habs fucking play 60 minutes in game six. Beautiful. All right. Well, it all goes down tomorrow night, 7.30 p.m. in Montreal. 2,500 fans will we'll look forward to finally hearing some non-pre-recorded fans in the stands there. It'll be fun. Yeah, Chris, all the best. Thanks for joining us. All right, Kyle. Thanks, man.
Before we sit down with author Todd Zalecki, we are going to quickly remind you guys about our friends over at MyBookie. You can either head over to their website at mybookie.ag or even easier, head over to dinespressbox.com, which I know you guys are already frequenting to get all of the latest articles and great content we're putting up there daily. We've got tons of links to their website from there. Those links already come with the code for referrals and everything in there, so they'll know who sent you. But if you just head over to their website, make sure you use the promo code DINESPORTS D-Y-N-E-S sports, no space in between, all one word. They've got all sorts of first deposit bonuses and all that to choose from as well too, but head over there because who knows maybe you want to put a little parlay on some of the games tonight although we've been talking a ton about game six between the Leafs and the Habs I'm going to sprinkle a little all Boston parlay going on tonight two teams so we got the Bruins going against the Islanders I'm going to take them to win on the money line and then heading over to the MLB as well too we've got Red Sox versus Marlins you got Nate Eovaldi taking the bump there and then Rogers for the Marlins who ridiculously 1.75 ERA but I like the the Red Sox to come out on top in that one there. So an all Boston parlay, we'll see how that one works out. Either way, whether you want to take my advice or not, make sure you always gamble responsibly, must be 18 or older. But if you do go to that website, make sure you use the right promo code. We got to make sure that we keep our friends over there happy and our listeners rolling in dough as well too. Now it's time to sit down with author and MLB beat writer, Todd Zalecki. Joining us today, we have Todd Zalecki, Phillies beat writer for MLB.com and author of Doc, The Life of Roy Halladay, which is out everywhere now. You can go and grab yourselves a copy. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Happy to talk some baseball here. And, you know, for those that are looking to pick up a copy, as we mentioned, it is available everywhere. But you will notice as well, too. For those that are picking up a copy north of the border, you're going to have Doc in a Blue Jays uniform. For everyone stateside, you'll have Doc in a Phillies uniform. So kind of a cool concept there. Who came up with that to market it based on location? Yeah, that was the, that was the publisher. And that was something I, I honestly never even knew was a possibility. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about the book, they said, we kind of had this idea because obviously Doc is a Blue Jays legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in but in Philly, he had the no hitter in the perfect game, and uh, they said like, we we think we might do two different covers, uh, and I guess you know because of I don't know, barcoding or whatever, they, it's it's not that hard to do. So I was like, well, that's not, that seems to make a lot of sense. So uh, the hardcover, yeah, there's a Blue Jays cover uh, in, in the states. It's a it's a he's in the Phillies uniform, and what's been kind of funny is I've had people in the states uh, email me or reach out to me and go. I, I don't want Roy in the Phillies uniform. I want him in the blue <laughs> uniform. I said, well, you're going to have to go to like to Indigo or um, get on Amazon.ca or something like that to try to uh, purchase the uh, Doc in the Blue Jays cover. But it's worked out really well. Now, in the paperback, which is coming out, um, they're just going to do a – he's going to be in the Phillies uniform on the cover, and on the back is going to be the Blue Jays cover, I just for, – for whatever reason. But, but the hardcover is kind of cool. I, I was really happy with that. Yeah, I was going to say you're creating a, a black market here for uh, people needing to reach out to their Canadian friends and get a hold of the uh, collector's edition items there, right? That's all. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, I mean, Roy was legendary in his dedication and preparation to get ready for each and every one of his starts. Didn't matter whether it was the middle of July or a postseason start, right? What sort of things did Doc do? to mentally and physically gear himself up that really separated himself from some of the other athletes you've covered over your career? 
Well, he had a very, uh, on the physical side of it, he had a very strict workout routine. I mean, every minute of every day had a purpose to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll hear about athletes being hard workers and whatnot, but um, he kept a binder of everything that he did every day, how he felt after he did it. So, you know, in other words, like, so if, if uh, the following May, he started to not feel so good, he could go back to the previous May and go, okay, what was I doing then? And how did I feel then? Oh, I kind of felt the same. This is not that big of a deal. Or, uh, you know, what did I do last week? And how could I tweak that? You know, how can I change my off-season training regimen? So, you know, teammates would always say like, when I got to the ballpark on Tuesday for a seven o'clock start, and it was 1.36 p.m. and 28 seconds. If I needed to find Roy, I know where I could find him because he was always in the same spot doing the same thing every single day, you know, two days after a start. I mean, that's how down to the minute, that's how precise he was. And, and so he did that. He watched a ton of film. He kept notebooks on every hitter he faced, how he attacked him, what he learned from it. So the next time he faced him, he could maybe tweak something, uh, keep it the same if it worked really well. And then from the mental aspect, he was a big believer in Harvey Dorfman, the mental ABCs of pitching. He carried that book with him everywhere he went. He would read passages um, constantly. He kept carried the book with him. You know, Roy Halladay, before start, he'd go, let me, I'm not feeling too good about my, about this. And so he'd flip to the, a page about umpires or mental preparation or whatever. And, and it, it never stopped for him. And one of the Phillies' athletic trainers, Scott Sheridan said, he, it was almost as though when, as soon as his start ended and he got into the trainer's room, his mind started spinning towards the next start, you know, mm-hmm. like it never, end, it never, ever ended for him. Yeah. So with all these giant thick binders there, he would have been a good person to be friends with in high school there. Cause you could just get the notes for absolutely everything from him. Then. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. He had everything, anything he needed. Yeah. So Especially in the early part of his career, though, it wasn't a rocket launch to success. He, he had his ups and downs. So if someone had have told you in, say, 2000 that Roy Halladay was going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, eight-time All-Star, two-time Cy Young winner, like, what would your reaction have been watching those early years of Doc Holliday out there? You would say, well, what the heck happened there? Because he looks really, really bad right now. I mean, he was bad. And, you know, I write, write about this in the book. He had a 10.64 ERA in 2000, which to this day remains the highest ERA in baseball history of any pitcher with more than 50 innings. And, you know, I, I, I went back and I looked at other Hall of Famers, Hall of Fame pitchers, and I think like the next highest one was like Lefty Grove one year had like a 6.5 ERA at the end of his career. So like Roy Halladay's worst year as a Hall of Famer was four earned runs worse than the next hall of fame pitcher. So like that never happens Yeah, pitcher that bad, you know? And I looked at the other pitchers that were underneath him in terms of single season ERAs. And it's like a list of nobody's uh, players that like blew out their shoulder that year and never pitched again, guys in the last years of their career. Um, those were the people that ranked underneath him. And so it's kind of a weird, it really is remarkable. Um, and I talked to Chris Carpenter about it and I, I, I did a real nice interview with him at the end. I said, anything else I think I should know. He's like, I don't think people really appreciate how far he fell and how, you know, high he had to climb out of that hole that he was in. It's like, I really don't think that people understand like how deep in it he was. And, you know, then you look at the historical background of it and it really kind of all makes sense. Well, that's just it, right? People 
and especially the, the younger listeners who are listening to this here who remember the dominant Roy of later years, like they, they don't understand how rocky it was and how close he actually was to pitching himself out of the major leagues for good in the early part of his career. So with that historically bad ERA, especially in the year 2000, and they send him down to, you know, I think it was single A ball even that mm-hmm. they sent him to to rework it. What was it that Roy and Mel Queen, the Jays pitching coach, like what were some of the things that they tinkered with to sort of rebuild him, not only mentally and physically, but just even in his delivery and his pitching mechanics? Like, were there one or two things that they really zeroed in on? Yeah. So like with Roy, um, when he came up, you know, because he was so successful in high school, he was like really over the top, like you know, the pitching motion was like, the, you know, kind of just coming straight over. And um, they, they called him Iron Mike, like the old the old pitching machine. It was like a, a, a just a lever, a metal lever that would go and fire a batting cage. So they called him Iron Mike. So uh, his fastball had no movement. It came in straight, and his his curveball he couldn't throw for strikes. And so what happened early on in his career is hitters would just lay off the curveball. Like he can't throw this pitch for a strike, and if he does, it's lucky. I'm just going to wait for him to throw a fastball in the zone because. You know, and he, it, it has no movement to it. And so what Mel Queen did is, um, from a physical standpoint, is he told him to throw sidearm. And so, so Roy, Roy basically, he didn't throw sidearm, obviously, but he dropped his arm slot to like, like this, kind of like three-quarter slot. And, um, and, that, and then he taught him how to throw a, a sinker and a cutter. And in talking to people that were there when it happened, they said it was like immediate, as soon Roy thought he was throwing sidearm, but really it was only like six, seven, eight inches off to where he was throwing. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the ball started moving. So he would try to throw a ball in the middle of the strike zone and it would, the sinker would kind of tail in on a right-hander. It would tail away, uh, you know, tail away from, uh, tail, yeah, tail into a right-hander and away from a left-hander. And um, the transformation was almost instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so Mel, Mel gets all the credit in the world for kind of, you know, imagine telling a former first round draft pick, you're going to be out of baseball in four months. If you don't listen to everything that I tell you, uh, either you're going to be a, a, a first round bust or you're going to have a shot to make it. And, and to, to Roy's credit, he goes, okay, let's, let's try this. And the other thing that Mel did is he kind of broke him down mentally um, to understanding that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. Cause he was always kind of like a big fish in a little pond. And now he was just uh, you know, his wife, uh, Brandy, said he was just kind of a fish in the ocean, you know, like at, at that point of his career. So he needed all the help he could get. And he, and he, and he, he took the advice and, and he was off and running after that. Well, like you just said, too, you know, all the credit goes to obviously Mel for putting that program together, but also a huge part to Roy, because especially if you think of today's modern athlete and how coddled they are all the way up through high school and college and all of that you got to wonder how many people really would have taken that advice to heart versus now I I know better. I'm going to shop around to find the diagnosis or whatever that I want to hear from this as well too. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, I I think a lot of uh, just, yeah, just because they've had so much success, it's so hard to tell somebody to change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think, you know, Roy had the, you know, Mel was really tough on him. And I think that helped. I think if it was kind of just like your average run-of-the-mill pitching coach that really wasn't so forceful in his suggestions that maybe maybe he wouldn't have listened. But I also think the fact that like Roy was so bad, so bad that ten point six four ERA, which I mentioned, and he was just he was getting hit as bad or worse that spring training uh, that he knew like okay, well 
clearly I, this is not going to work. Yeah. So what do I have to lose at this point? Because I'm just getting obliterated every time I go to the mound. Yeah. I just needed to change. Yeah. So in the pantheon of competitive athletes you've covered over the years, where does Roy Halladay rank in that list? Because it's not just baseball that he wanted to beat you at. He wanted to beat you at everything off the field as well, too. Yeah, he was hyper competitive. Uh, you know, he liked to, he let, he just liked to be great at everything, you know? So like if he wanted to be the world's greatest fisherman, he wanted to be the world's greatest golfer, um, you know, anything that he did with his teammates, he, he wanted to be the best at or, ha or have the best things to help him be the best at it. Uh, yeah, he was an incredibly intense competitor. Um, teammates knew on the day that he pitched, do not talk to Roy Halladay because he came in in this like bubble almost, you know, in this, in the zone and you knew not to approach him. Like some pitchers you can go up to on the day they start, if you're a teammate and just go, Hey, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. With Roy and talking and in the, talking to seasoned veteran teammates, you know, guys like Jason Worth and Chase Utley with the Phillies, you know, you knew not to approach him on game days. Cause he was, he was kind of, he was thinking about how the day was going to go and he replayed the at-bats that he had with every hitter so often in his head or, or you know kind of previewed the at-bats he expected to have with every hitter so often how he was going to attack him etc that he said that when he stepped on the mound he kind of felt that all the work was done and he could just let his body take over at that point it was he was almost on autopilot in a sense do any particular stories of his off-field uh, competitiveness stick out to you when you're looking back on it I, I just know that like, you know, in terms of like fishing, you know, he, uh, you know, Brandy basically said that his, his wife, Brandy said that, you know, in the off season or whatever, um, because he wanted to be a great fisherman, he would get the best boat, the best reels, the best lures, you know, or a fisherman might need uh, with golf, he would get the best gadgets. So she said in his garage, in their garage, there are just tons of um, golf gadgets, fishing gadgets, anything like that. And it was because when he went fishing, he wanted to catch the most fish when he went golfing and he worked on his golf game. Uh, you know, when he played with his friends, even if it was just Chris Carpenter and some of his Blue Jays teammates or some of his Phillies teammates, he wanted to be good at it. Um, so I think that's probably the, uh, the thing that sticks out, sticks out about Roy. So there was no, uh, oh, we're going to go out for a nice afternoon fish, have a couple pints and see, see what bites like <laughs> Roy would have kept you out on the water till he landed at least one or two then. Eh? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, he, you know, he would have his, his, his pints or two here or there, you know, uh, Chris Carpenter told a story, uh, one off season, they were in Brazil and they were, uh, on the Amazon and, and I think they had a couple pints and, uh, they decided to jump into the Amazon, uh, for a couple minutes just because, uh, they, and it was Roy's idea. He's like, it was Roy's idea. He was basically like, come on, how we literally are never going to get the opportunity to say we swam in the Amazon river. Yeah. And Chris Carpenter's like, yeah, but there could be like piranha in there. It could be crocodiles and snakes. He's like, let's just do it. Let's just jump in for a few seconds so we can say that we did it. And, and, and they did it. Of course. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was one of my favorite stories about Roy. Cause it showed, showed how much fun he liked to have away from the ballpark. So outside of immediate family, the people who probably know Roy the best, or at least his tendencies, weren't 
maybe even necessarily teammates, but it probably would have been, you know, his strength and conditioning coaches, his pitching coaches, the people who are putting him through the paces day in, day out, and actually see how his mind kind of works. When you were putting this book together, was there one or maybe even two particular people who were just amazing interviews, just fountains of knowledge about Roy that really helped you put it all together? Yeah, really, like what you just said, uh, George Polis, who is the longtime Blue Jays uh, athletic trainer, he was instrumental uh, in the book. Donovan Santos, he was the former strength and conditioning coach for the Blue Jays. Uh, he provided tons of detail just about, you know, how Roy would, he, Donovan would have to go running with Roy on, on the road or even at home outside Rogers Center, like they would go running along the path or along the lake. And, um, you know, Donovan would tell these funny stories about how they'd be out for a 25 minute run and they would be running hard. And then all of a sudden uh, they would be getting approaching Rogers Center and then a mar- somebody training for a marathon, some random person, man, woman, whatever, uh, you know, training for the Boston Marathon, for instance, they would just sprint by Roy near the Rogers Center and Roy being a competitor. He's like, I can't let that person beat me. And so Roy would run that person down <laughs> the way Donovan told it was kind of funny. Cause he's like, it's like, it's funny because like Roy was fit at, at minute 23 of a 25 minute run, a hard run, but at minute 23 of a 25 minute run. And this person was probably in the first mile of a 15 mile run. Mm-hmm. And, and they had no idea that they just passed Roy Halliday, but Roy Halliday's like, I'm not letting this person pass me before I get to the ballpark. And so Roy would run him down and it happened in, um, it happened on the Charles River in Boston. It would happen in Baltimore on the Inner Harbor. Um, and then, you know, he also told a great story about at Old Bush Stadium. They they ran all they ran the ramps all the way up to the top of Bush Stadium, and then they ran one lap around and figured it was like a quarter of a mile around or something like that. Or you know, and, and Roy said, you know what? Let's just run a mile as fast as we possibly can do it. Let's just see how we can do it just so we could say that we did it, you know, and, and Donovan's like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And Roy just wanted to time himself and see how fast he could do it. So there's all those, those, all those types of stories. Uh, Dong lean, who's the Philly strength and conditioning coordinator, Scott Sheridan, who's the Philly's athletic trainer at the time. They told me all sorts of great stories as well. Uh, Dong, Dong was, Dong was great. Cause like uh, he, you know, he told me, he's like, you know, I, he would always listen to like this, I'd be, I'd be stretching him out before starts and he would be listening to only time by Enya in his headphones. I could hear him listening to that, like, you know, an hour before a start or half an hour before a start or whatever. And, uh, which I think is just fascinating because sometimes you think of these athletes and you think of them like, um, maybe listening to heavy metal or rap or whatever to get super fired up. But he would listen to this very calm and soothing music because Roy so much of the game was mental and he had done all the physical work. So he was kind of putting himself into this Zen state uh, before he stepped on the mound, which I always thought was neat. So those guys, like you said, like they, they knew him better than anybody. Uh, and they, they, I mean, without those four guys and a few others, you know, the book wouldn't have been any near as detailed as, as it was. So there's probably dozens of non-baseball fans out there who have some strange stories of there was this weird hulking guy who chased me down by the river there who had no idea who Roy Halladay was, but he's just part of their life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, was that Roy Halladay or what? This 6'6 six, six guy just yeah. ran. It was such, such a weird thing. The 6'6 six, six guy ran me down once by Rogers Center. That was probably Roy Halladay if it was, you know, between uh, 2002 and 2009. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so do you think looking at the entirety of his career, Roy would be remembered differently had he actually won a World Series? Because when you talk about sort of the modern greats, the names like Maddox, Clemens, Johnson, Martinez, they come up all the time, but not as often do people really discuss Roy Halladay and the career that he had. Yeah, I think there that there could be some truth to that. I think that's certainly possible. Um, you know, you think of like uh, when you talk about all-time greats, like Ernie Banks is an all-time great. He never made the playoffs, uh, so maybe he's not mentioned as much. You know, there's so there are certainly those types of players, but I do know that um, in talking to players that played against Roy and with Roy during his during his peak years from. You know, really, when he came back in 01 from the minor leagues through through 2011, they say that he was he was the best, if not the best, one of the top three pitchers in baseball. Um, and I think nowadays. The modern fan has more of an appreciation for how hard baseball is and how it's not just one guy, you know, like I vote for MVP every couple of years as a member of the Baseball Writers Association and you know, in the past, it used to be like, well, you can't, you can't name Mike Trout MVP because his team, he, his team stinks, but you can name this guy MVP because uh, he helped his team get to the playoffs. It's like, and I get that, but it's, you, you need a whole team. It's not like, it's not like the NFL, um, I guess like maybe the NHL a little bit where you have a couple superstars and they can kind of help carry a team. Uh, you know, you can have Roy Halladay on your team, still not win. You can have Mike Trout on your team still not win. And um, so I think, I think the modern fan has an appreciation for that. So I feel like uh, people, people maybe appreciate him more um, than maybe they would have if he pitched in the fifties and dominated, but never made the playoffs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if we fast forward then maybe 50 years, sort of is going to be the narrative around Halliday. Like, is he going to be one of those guys that people are still talking about? Or do you think he might get maybe lost in the shuffle a little bit when we are talking about some of the best of that era. I, I think, I think he will still be talked about and I think he'll still be talked about because he, he, he was kind of the last of a breed of old school pitcher. I mean, I, and I don't have the stat correct, but I looked this up maybe like in the off season at some point, I don't think there's a pitcher. I think if you looked at like Roy Halladay from like, 2002 to now I think he still like leads baseball in like complete games and shutouts or, or something like that it's it's a, it's a crazy stat we're basically saying like um you know he was the, he was the last of this old school breed a guy that would go out pitch eight nine innings pitch complete games pitch shutouts um and and so I think when people look back 50 years from now especially if the game doesn't change and it's like these five six inning guys they're going to go, oh yeah, Roy Halladay, he was one of the last old school guys. And, and so I think that'll help him live on. Um, I think the fact that he was, he had this legendary mental and physical approach will live on. And I think the fact that he, he had only one of the two no postseason no hitters in baseball history. And uh, he had one of the, you know, 2021 20, perfect games in baseball history. I, I think that'll, that'll kind of help him endure. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, look at the state of the Blue Jays right now with the, their rotation and their their bullpen. They, they could use a guy who can go eight, nine innings. Like, my God. I mean, I, I, every team could. And, and, and you, know, you know what I find is interesting is that, yeah, like, I, I wonder how Roy would, like, if his approach would change now or not. Because he was basically, he talked about this a lot. And I found these quotes from him and I put, put a lot of these quotes in the book on how, 
a perfect game for him was not 27 strikeouts because that would mean three pitches per batter. Uh, it was 27 pitches, 27 outs. Like he wanted players to hit the ball immediately. Like he was attacking, attacking, attacking. He didn't, he didn't waste pitches. Freddie Freeman said that to me. He's like, I love facing Roy. Cause you know uh, you know, if he threw 110 pitches, everyone was going to be competitive. Whereas today, if a guy throws 110 pitches, like 40 of them are just balls out of the hand of just wasted pitches. And uh, so you wonder if like Roy was here today, if he would, I, I assume he would continue to attack guys that way because the stuff was so good. But um, it, it's amazing in the sense that more pitchers don't try to do that. They just will just waste pitches and they'll rack up their pitch count. And, and Roy did not want to rack up his pitch count. He wanted to go out there and get guys early and, and get them quickly. So I feel like I know the answer to this just because you, you are a Phillies beat writer there. But to you, which season was more impressive of his two Cy Youngs? Was it the 03 season or was it the 2010 season? And why do you rank one above the other? Well, you know, I, I, yeah, I think I would say the 2010 season. And I, but I would only say that because the perfect game in that postseason no hitter fell in there. And I know that the postseason thing was postseason and you don't vote on postseason stuff in terms of Cy Young award. But I just think if you look at the 2010 season as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, that was the most impressive. And and I think because uh, Roy himself had been watching like Chris Carpenter, his good friend, Chris Carpenter pitched in the postseason for years with the Cardinals. And he had always wondered how would I do in that situation? Would I have, would I like step up like my buddy, Chris, would I be terrible? Um, would I feel too much pressure? Would I, you know, seize the moment. And so the fact that he seized the moment, I think was really cool. But I think, you know, in 2003, um, you know, Brandy, Brandy said that was such a cool moment because he was so bad just two years before that, mm-hmm. by the way, he did that in the American league East, Yeah, you know, uh, facing the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Orioles, you know, the Rays weren't so good back then, but, um, you know, facing the DH and David Ortiz all the time. And, and so, you know, they're, they're both equally, they're both, you could make, make strong arguments for each of them, you know, uh, I think the newness of it makes 2003 uh, special in its own right. And like you just said, 2010, what a season that was. He's got a perfect game and he becomes the second player to ever throw a postseason no-hitter. So if you look strictly at the numbers in the 150 years of baseball that have been going on, you know, there have been over 200,000 regular season games played and something like 8,000 postseason. So by the numbers, the perfect game is actually the harder feat to accomplish, even though two people have only ever done the postseason no-hitter. So Roy Halladay aside, Todd Zalecki is on the mound. Which would you rather have on your resume? A perfect game or becoming one of two postseason no-hitting? I think I would take the postseason no-hitter just because of the stage it was, the the stage that it is. And uh, yeah, you're right. The perfect game is so much harder to accomplish. But I I, I just think there's something for stepping up in in the postseason. Now, the way baseball is going nowadays where it seems like somebody throws a no-hitter every day, like, maybe five years from now there'd be like eight no postseason no hitters and it won't be a big deal anymore uh so maybe my opinion will change (laughs) at the moment i just think that you know that is the ultimate pressure moment because if you know you get a perfect game in the regular season tremendous accomplishment but uh there's not so much there's not as much pressure 
uh, to do it. Whereas like there's pressure just starting the game in the postseason. It's like he's starting game one of his first postseason career, uh, postseason start of his career. So he's like, I don't want to go out and stink. Not only did he not stink, he was amazing. <laughs> it was one of the best performances ever. And it's funny about that game is you talk to some of his teammates and they go, he was, he was way better that game than he was in the perfect game. Like way better that game. The first couple innings in that perfect game in Miami, he was kind of struggling with the strike zone. He, you know, he kind of got, he kind of benefited from some borderline calls. Uh, but, that, but they said in that, in that postseason game against the Reds that Raul Banya said, after watching that first inning, he's like, oh, my God, he's going to do it again. Like, he's going to throw a no-hitter or a perfect game. Like, they were like, oh, this is amazing. He's, he's, he's even more dialed in than he was in Miami in May, in May of 2010. All right. Last question before we let you go here, Todd. Is there anyone currently pitching in the MLB that reminds you a little bit about Roy Halladay there or has some aspect of their game that is similar to his? Or do you think that – like you were saying earlier, he might be the last of his kind. And they really is, he sort of broke the mold. I think uh, the guy that immediately jumped to mind when you asked that is, is Max Scherzer. Mm-hmm. I just think because he seems, you know, he, he pitches deep into games. He's been dominant for an extended period of time. And I think he's just hyper competitive. You know, the guy, um, you know, remember a couple of years ago, he was taking BP in the cage and I think he bunted a ball off of his face. Yeah swung and fouled a ball off of his face and he made his next start against the Phillies and like shoved it against the Phillies. Like he was amazing. Uh, so I think like he's the guy that comes to mind is maybe most, most close, closely uh, to Roy. He strikes out more guys than Roy. Um, but again, Roy was a little different, not to say that Max isn't, doesn't try to do this, but Roy wasn't pitching for strikeouts. He was pitching for early contact, hit my pitch. You're not going to hit my pitch. If you do hit it, you're going to, you know, f- break your bat on, you know, fist it off your hands or, you know, hit it off the end of the bat and make a, a slow roller to the opposite field, you know, that type of thing. So, uh, yeah, I think Max would be the guy. Max would be the guy. I think Roy would, you know, Roy enjoyed watching him pitch. Amazing. All right. Well, for those that are listening right now that want to either follow your work at MLB.com or connect with you on social media or even pick up your book, where are the best places for them to go and check out any of those things? So on social media, I'm at at Todd Zalecki, Z-O-L-E-C-K-I. On Instagram, Todd Zalecki, MLB. Uh, And then, you know, anywhere you can buy a book online. So uh, in Canada, you know, Indigo, um, I I like to show them some love because they were nice to me uh, during the pandemic last year. And then, you know, anywhere else, you know, um, I know the Canadian uh, Canadian uh, Baseball Hall of Fame sells my book there. They've been super nice to me. So, yeah, but any, you know, make a long story short, anywhere you can buy uh, a book online, um, you know, uh, you should be able to find it. If you get the hardcover in Canada, you can get the Blue Jays cover. If you get the paperback, you'll get the him in the Phillies uni with the with the Blue Jays uni on the back. So, uh, you know, whatever your preference is, I appreciate the support in any way, shape or form. There you go. And if you get the hardcover edition, maybe buy a couple extras, then you can try and swap them for a Phillies cover. They're down south of the border, too. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. That's perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today, Todd, and best of luck with the rest of the MLB season. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
That's a wrap for another edition of the Dying Sports Podcast on the Dying Sports Podcast Network. As always, a huge thank you goes out to both of our guests today, Chris and Todd, for sitting down with us talking all things NHL, all things MLB, book releases, and more. Shout out to our sponsors, MyBookie. Be sure to head over to their website, get some parlays, get some wagers, get some a little bit of everything going this weekend for you. Make sure to use the code DYNESPORTS, no space in between, D-Y-N-E-S, sports with an S at the end of it so that they know who sent you. Until next time, everyone, have a great weekend. Enjoy game six tonight. We'll see who's moving on to face the Jets, and we'll see you next week.